Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have David Day on the program. His new book, Conquest, How Societies Overwhelm Others, has just come out from Oxford University Press. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have David Day on the program. His new book, Conquest, How Societies Overwhelm Others, has just come out from Oxford University Press. The book was quite eye-opening for me in that it put a lot of the instances of um, imperialism and genocide that I believe to be unique into a broader historical perspective. I think that you'll find the book interesting as well if you choose to read it. I enjoyed talking to David today, and I hope that you enjoy listening to the interview. Here it is. Hi, David. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. good coping with Melbourne's weather. Yeah, I know. What is what is Melbourne's weather like these days? Well, it's it's the middle of winter. Yes, so that's it's, right. Uh, it's, gonna... it's wet and cold. Yeah. Well, here it's uh, going to be near 100 degrees tomorrow. You'll be happy to know, I guess. So anyway, let me tell our audience that we have David Day on the show today. We're very happy to have him, and we'll be talking about his book, Conquest, How Societies Overwhelm Others. Um, it's recently appeared from Oxford University Press, and, and some of you may know David. He's a historian and author of many, many books. I'm looking at a list of them here, and I'm, I'm being quite impressed. Anyway, David, let me ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Perhaps you could just say a few words about where you were born and where you grew up and where you went to school, how you became interested in history and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, well, I was born in Melbourne, actually, but um, my father worked for the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia and was transferred up to Charleville, which is in outback Queensland, almost on the edge of the desert, really, very dry place. But it be- had become a, an important airport during the war and remained so after the war when, when aircraft had, had rel- relatively mm-hmm. limited ranges. Um, so we spent about six years there uh, in this place where you, know, you used to go off to school in your, in your bare feet. Um, <laughs> real sort of, I guess, Tom Sawyer type yeah, of life, really. Like that, yeah. And then eventually we moved back to Melbourne and, and of course, a very different life. Melbourne was a very um, uptight, sort of almost British City, much more British. You know, the mm-hmm. distinction between Melbourne and Sydney. Sydney was much more sort of Irish, I guess, and Melbourne much more British. So mm-hmm. Very buttoned-up sort of place. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, went through school in the outer suburbs, rather 
dull place. Melbourne, in fact, itself was was rather dull. Mm-hmm. Not sure what the American equivalent would be, but it certainly wasn't New York. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I mean, people say Cleveland, but I find Cleveland a great city, so I, I don't know what it would be. <laughs> Maybe Cleveland in the 50s. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But, but it was very dull for me anyway growing up. I went on to um, Melbourne University. Mm-hmm. Initially to do a um, a commerce degree, mm-hmm. I was interested in accounting of all things. Really, <laughs> and, but um, got very tired of that, um, and also became involved in in the movement against the Vietnam War, which is Australia. Unbeknownst to most people in the world, was very much involved in yeah, the Vietnam right. War. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and uh, we had you know the draft in Australia, uh, which I um, resisted. Um, so got disillusioned with with uh, with studies and uh, ended up briefly in jail for uh, really for resisting the draft. Yeah. Well, I'm glad they released uh, you. Well, fortunately, we we had a change of government in 1972, and uh, all the pe- some people had spent two years in in really? jail. I didn't know that. Um, uh, fortunately, I only spent a week, well, uh, but good, I was yeah. facing I was facing a two-year jail sentence uh-huh. at the time, so I was very relieved yeah. when the new government came in and ended the commitment to to Vietnam and and abolished the draft. Mm-hmm. Um, so I left university uh, and uh, went out and worked in a factory mm-hmm. for about five years, mm-hmm. and then my wife was finishing off her degree. She was a teacher, mm-hmm. and uh, she'd been doing history, and I got interested. Uh, yeah, I'd been interested when I was doing commerce in economic history, mm-hmm. and then got interested in her work uh, on history, and um, then lost my job in the factory just <laughs> at Christmas time when, when um, the university was starting up again. I applied to go back to university. Mm-hmm. Um, and was allowed back in, thankfully, even though I'd failed two years running mm-hmm. because of my political activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, started a, a history and politics degree um, and then uh, had some great teachers at, at Melbourne University. One in particular, although we crossed swords, um, uh, Jeffrey Blaney was um, you know, instrumental, really, in in teaching me the importance of of writing clearly and well, and communicating to a general audience mm-hmm. uh, rather than just to the the academic down the corridor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really quite influential. Um, and then from there, I went went on to Cambridge to do to do a PhD, mm-hmm. and uh, on. You know, I was interested very much because of my experience in Vietnam or in, the, in opposing the Vietnam War, in 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 war and the, mm-hmm. you know, what causes people to engage in in often you know, senseless activities of killing mm-hmm. other people. Yeah. Um, so I um, was also interested in trying to get to grips with Australian history, mm-hmm. and um, so I. I just, focused particularly on the Second World War, which was seen mm-hmm. as a big turning point mm-hmm. in Australian history. So mm-hmm. I looked at the relationship between Australia and Britain during the Second World War and uh, wrote my thesis on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then stayed on, in, uh, stayed on in, in Cambridge for another five years. 
Um, and it was there that really I got the the first inklings of the ideas for conquest. Mm -hmm. Partly through looking at Australia during the Second World War, and I was really struck, you know, comparing the attitudes of the Australian Prime Minister John Curtin with the attitudes of of Winston Churchill. At church, you know, both countries were facing the possibility of an invasion, mm -hmm. and Churchill was was fairly relaxed <laughs> to that extent. You know, he didn't see that it would mean the end of Britain. Mm -hmm. You know, might might cause the the loss of the empire, but Britain could withstand. He believed, you know, an invasion by Germany. Mm -hmm. Germany would take control, but eventually. Britain would rise again, mm -hmm. but Curtin had no such confidence about Australia. Mm. He felt that once the Japanese landed in Australia, that would be the end of it. Mm -hmm. Australia would not rise again. Mm -hmm. That uh, that the underpinnings of Australia, the hold of white Australians on the continent, was so tenuous that once the Japanese landed, you know, a whole new history would. would uh, would ensue mm -hmm. you know, that, that somebody else would would take control of the place, and white Australians would never again mm -hmm. gain control of the continent. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, really enlightening for me. I mean, I'd never seen it, and sort of coming to this idea when I'm outside of Australia, I think, was also uh, influential. I don't think I would have, you know, would have just passed over me. I think had I been mm -hmm. reading these documents in Australia itself. Mm -hmm because you know, Australia seems such a fixture, mm -hmm. you know, such a certainty, it seems so solid. Yeah. It, it, it didn't seem possible to be simply erased uh, mm -hmm. by the landing of the Japanese. But, but looking at it from the vantage point of, of, uh, of the United Kingdom, I could see the point of what, uh, of what Curtin was trying to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, when he was sending all these sort of frantic cables to Churchill appealing for assistance and cables to, to Roosevelt appealing for assistance and saying uh, this, the life of Australia depends upon it. Mm -hmm. He really did mean that Australia would be dead. Mm -hmm. um, that is remarkable. I, did, I, did, I, didn't re I didn't realize that at all. And I didn't know that Churchill actually sort of thought, did he think on paper about Britain being extinguished in that way or not extinguished but invaded by the Nazis and then rising again? Oh yes, yeah. I uh, yeah, uh, I'm not sure of the exact document now off the top of my head. This was 20 years ago or so that I was uh -huh. reading. Yeah, sure. But he did reflect upon it, yeah. and um, and did express his confidence in, uh -huh. in uh, Britain rising again. Uh -huh. you know, it wouldn't be the end of Britain at all. So then, between um, writing uh, about Australia in the Second World War, about Curtin and Churchill and so on and so forth. And conquest. There are a lot of books. I'm not going to say I'm looking at a list of them here. <laughs> You're a remarkably yeah. prolific person, so perhaps you yeah. Well, bit. I guess you know I wrote several books on, on Australia and and Britain in the Second World War, um, and then came back to Australia in in late uh, in the late 80s mm -hmm. and wrote a, an official history of the Australian Customs Service. Mm -hmm. 
as a way really of getting into Australian history, you know, while a wider field of Australian history, mm -hmm. uh, because the Customs Service was involved in so many different things, and not just um, applying a tariff to imported goods, but also in enforcing the white Australia policy. Mm -hmm. I mean, checking on immigrants and mm -hmm. in charge of, of, um, of maintaining the racial barrier mm -hmm. is in charge of you know, checking on um, uh, on the import of um, of obscene articles, of uh, birth control devices, right. uh, mm -hmm. etc. So a whole range of different things. So that was really enlightening. Looking at this history that went way back to the beginnings of um, of white settlement in Australia. Mm -hmm. Uh, in 1788. Um, so then that sort of gave me a really quite good grasp of, uh, of the whole gamut of, of Australian history. And then I got appointed as a visiting professor at University College Dublin. I had to suddenly teach this broad <laughs> survey course on, on Australian history. Yeah. And that will, that, history. That will focus the mind. <laughs> yeah. So suddenly, you know, I hadn't done it before. Um, so I suddenly had to sit down and write, write this course. Uh -huh. So using this, these ideas that I had um, about a supplanting society, that I had uh, written a, an article about, a journal article about in, in uh, 1988, and basing uh, the course partly on the, the customs history, I sat down and, and wrote a, a lecture course Mm -hmm. survey course on Australian history, which I then sort of sat down and uh, and and put into a book, uh, claiming a continent, mm -hmm. which had as its organising theme the idea of uh, of white Australia as being uh, not a colonial society so much, but a supplanting society. Mm -hmm. uh, by which I mean a you know, a society that comes to the land that's already occupied, and then over a prolonged period of time seeks to make that land its own mm -hmm. um, because you know, what those documents, those wartime documents revealed was that you know, the landing of Captain Cook in 1770 and the later landing of the First Fleet in 1788 did not end the contest for Australia. It was simply the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. simply the first stage of a prolonged process that is still ongoing. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that Australians are still seeking to claim a preeminent hold on Australia as opposed to the, you know, the pre-existing Aboriginal people and also people outside. You know, Australia has been obsessed with the idea of invasion throughout mm -hmm. its history and remains to some extent obsessed with that idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. Actually, you've reminded me of something that I... Uh, an Americanist taught me once, and that is that the seal of the state of Massachusetts, uh, which is where uh, the one of the first settlements in the United States was, um, home of Boston, Massachusetts, so on and so forth, uh, d depicts, uh, actually it says on it, um, and this is from the 17th century, come help us. That, that, that was the original <laughs> motto of the of the state of Massachusetts. Come help us, because they, of course, were you know they feared being extinguished as well. So, um, at what point did you decide actually to turn to this book directly and to write it? Well, I thought I thought originally writing that journal article back in 1988 that um, you know I just had to 
put the idea out there and people would say, oh, yes, that, that's interesting and, and sort of go ahead and, and develop it in all sorts of different ways. But, of course, that's not not really how, how things happen. No, people it's have not. their own <laughs> ideas and their own agendas. Yeah, no. Um, and it's really up to me to keep working away at it. Um, so I did in in, uh, in writing Claiming a Continent and thinking that if I did it for Australia, well, somebody in South Africa or somebody in America or somebody uh -huh. in Britain would take up the, it would read the book uh -huh. and um, perhaps write an equivalent book uh -huh. about their particular territory and yeah. society. Um, but of course that didn't happen. So I, um, it was obvious, of course, that the Australian example uh, was not unique. Uh -huh. You could look at just about anywhere in the world and see that this was also a supplanting society. Yes, that's right. There are very few places in the world where the present inhabitants did not come from somewhere else. I mean, there are... I mean, displaced uh, pre-existing people. Right, I mean, aside from Africa itself, someplace near the Old of Gorge, there aren't any such places. Um, and I well, even within Africa, I mean, there, yeah. there's so much movement of people over yeah. the centuries yeah, that no, you could apply these ideas to Africa as well. And that's what I found uh, particularly enlightening about your book, actually, is, is that, you know, in grade school, you're shown this multicolored map with these solid, bright primary colors that designate each country as if it is something solid and permanent. And the people yeah. there are called nations, and they're the people who live there. The French people live in France, and the Germans live in Germany, and the Americans live in America. But in fact, they all came from someplace else. I mean, we call ourselves in the United States a nation of immigrants, but, and this is again what I found particularly rewarding about your book, is that every nation is a nation of immigrants at some level. Yes, and, and I mean, you know, when Columbus or, or when the Spanish arrived in, in North America, they were not coming to a place that had these fixed borders and they were coming no, to replace yeah. them. No, that's They right. were coming to a place that had very fluid movements of people uh -huh. across the territory. Yeah, no, that's right. And you know, when they took over from the Aztecs, the Aztecs were recent arrivals themselves. Yes, right. No, that's exactly and, right. And, um, yeah. you know, had displaced pre-existing people yeah, that's uh, exactly in Mexico. Right. Yeah. You, you deal with another, a number of specific examples in the book. I mean, it, the book is arranged around the, the analysis of, of a series of examples. Perhaps we could just mention those. I mean, one of them is the, uh, the one that will come to mind for most readers is the Palestinian-Israeli situation now, but there are others, for example. Uh, well, why don't you just go ahead and detail them? Yeah, well, when I got the research grant to, to write the book um, back in the late um, 1990s, 1998, I also got um, appointed a visiting professor at uh, the University of Tokyo. So I spent a year there and uh, went up to Hokkaido and, mm -hmm. and went around and toured all the museums in mm -hmm. Hokkaido, uh, the Ainu museums and the museums mm -hmm. of, the, of the native people of that, of that island. Mm -hmm. So I was quite keen. What I was keen to do was to get away from the idea that much of the history of the world can be talked, can be thought in terms of... Um, of colonialism or imperialism, mm -hmm. that there are other more fundamental things going on um, and that um, that are continuing to go on even after the end of colonialism mm -hmm. or virtual end of colonialism and, and imperialism and um, that have been going on before you know, Europeans 
started moving out from that continent mm-hmm. and continue to go on. Um, so I was interested in in looking at examples, some examples from Africa and and Asia, and uh, examples close to Australia, uh, such as Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rather than simply concentrating, although there is a fair amount of concentration on on North America and Europe, mm-hmm. uh, necessarily partly because you know, I figured the the readership would be mainly in those places. Uh-huh. Um, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think people are generally aware. For example, uh, there's some consciousness of the fact that there is a geographical dispute going on between the Israelis and the. Um, Palestinians, but you know, I think consciousness, for example, of the historical mixing of the Germans and the Poles, uh, that the Japanese uh, really invasion of Hokkaido is not generally known. I, th- I think also that now the Chinese and Tibet, that's gaining a certain amount of prominence. The Russians, of course, I know very well, uh, have been at loggerheads and have been you know, assimilating various people and moving them around for three or four centuries now. Obviously, there's the Americans and um, that is the North Americans in both Canada and the United States, and then there's the Spanish in Mexico and the Australians themselves. I mean, one of the things that your book does a very good job of pointing out is that this is an extraordinarily common thing uh, yeah, in modern yeah. history. It's extraordinarily common, and it's not just the Palestinian and Israelis. It's everybody everywhere. You know, I mean, and and uh, and and. And, you know, again, another thing that, that your book really brought to mind to me is the fact that it's not at all over in a lot of places. You know, for example, the Macedonians and the Greeks. Um, yeah, as well, the Spanish and the Basques. Yes, uh, right. And, you know, just spending in, in recent months, spending some time in in Britain. It's still a very live issue in Britain. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. so you have, you have the, the Scottish Highlanders now claiming to the Parliament of Scotland that they, the Highlanders, should be regarded as indigenous people. Yes, right. Yeah. And they wanted to be, you know, on an international level, they want to be internationally regarded as indigenous people. Yeah, it's and the oddest. rights accordingly. Yeah. Um, I thought, I thought so one of the, yeah, no, I was going to say, I thought from an American perspective, one of the most interesting parts about your book uh, concerned what you had to say about our southwestern border. And I, I have to say, I had never really looked at it through the prism which you see it. And and that is, just to tell the listeners, that in a certain sense, um, that Hispanic people are uh, kind of re-assimilating a territory that was taken from Mexico in the 1840s. Maybe you could talk a little about that. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's an ongoing struggle uh, and, and it's a struggle between, I guess, Hispanic people coming to regard this place you know, as a place that they had and are now taking back, mm-hmm. but at the same time that they are being pulled by the American ideal idea as well, you know, the idea of being American. So they're being mm-hmm. assimilated to some extent mm-hmm. as American, mm-hmm. and. You know, the story is ongoing, and and it'll be interesting to see what happens in a hundred years. No, that's exactly right. It's funny because I was talking to my wife about it, and I sort of presented some of the material from your book, and she said, "Well, you know, obviously these people are going to be assimilated, and it won't be any problem, and the border won't move, and they'll become good Americans, and so on and so forth." But historically speaking, that's not what ordinarily happens. Not at all. No, it may not may not 
work out like that. I mean, parts of the United States may well become you know, effectively Hispanic. Yeah. See, this uh, is just this is. I mean, this is this is mind blowing for Americans to think about that 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 such a thing could occur on on this continent. But then again, you know, as my wife pointed out, it it it, it has happened in Canada with the Quebecois and the Canadians. I mean, Canada. Every, it seems like about every 20 years almost cease to exist as a state when the Quebecois decide whether they're going to be Canadians or not. Um, yes, well, of course, the Scots as well in Britain. It was unthinkable to think of, of Britain uh, being divided into three or four or more parts. Yeah, no, I, I, I noticed what you mean. It's funny because I had, uh, I had Scottish friends who, who, of course, were resident in London, and, and suddenly they they were telling me that they were Scottish, and I was—I kind of looked incredulously at them. This was in the 90s, and I was like, okay, you're Scottish now. Good. Glad yeah. to hear it. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of interesting. So um, one of the things that you point out in the book is that the process, that is, we might call it the stages through which a supplanting power comes to um, supplant the peoples who were there and to make the territory its own, um, are recurring, and by that I mean it usually begins, as you say, with a, a with a legal claim of some sort, and then proceeds through various steps. Maybe you could take us through that. Yeah, it, they're not really steps in that sense. Often they're <clears throat> all happening at the same time. Yeah, certainly. So there is usually this initial step, though, of you know the newcomers either simply sweeping in and invading a territory, or perhaps. You know, supposedly discovering it as Captain Cook did of Australia, mm-hmm. uh, and raising a flag or cutting down a tree or you know, wading into the water mm-hmm. and uh, and claiming the land as their own. But then, you know, that's as I mentioned, just the beginning of the process, um, and all sorts of other things then have to to come in their train after that. Um, you know, they have to get to know the land. And by that I mean, you know, they have to map it. They have to know know it in all its aspects. Uh-huh. You know, they have to know its nature. Uh-huh. Uh, they have to get to know its climate. Uh, they have to get to know. They have to get to feel that it's their home, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it. What I talk about is these three different claims that are made. One is, you know, the legal claim. One is a claim of effective proprietorship which is all about mapping and naming and and developing the resources of of the land, getting rid in some way of the pre-existing people uh, and uh, populating the place with your own people, Mm -hmm. with the new society. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this gives rise to a claim of effective proprietorship and at the same time, coincident with that, is this claim of, of moral proprietorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this sort of comes about when the pre-existing people, if there are any left, and there usually are, uh, it's very difficult to, um, to totally get rid of pre-existing mm-hmm. people, when they acknowledge that the land is now passed, the ownership of the land is now passed to the supplanting society, and that societies outside, you know, neighbours in particular, acknowledge that um, there are now new owners of this territory. Mm-hmm. Um, but even so, you know, as one can tell from from archaeology, 
societies rise and fall, and it's not the end of the story. Mm -hmm. uh, if one looks at a sufficiently long time frame, mm -hmm. new developments will take place. Another society will almost inevitably come along and say, well, you know, I would like to move on to that <laughs> land and, and yeah. to do so. Yeah. That has certainly been you know, the case in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the other... One of the other features that are, are um, uh, common to the planning societies is this need to create a foundation story mm -hmm. as well, to invest the people, to invest the the, uh, the people of the planning society with a conviction that they belong to that territory. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the the strength of the foundation story will often. Uh, uh, it will often um, determine whether or not a planning society is successful. So you have you know, the United States, one of its great strengths is the power of its foundation story, mm -hmm. which is not only so important to Americans, but has been accepted pretty much by the people of the world as well. You know, people mm -hmm. in, in, in other societies mm -hmm. look with awe almost at the... Uh, the foundation story of the United States, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but then you have other societies, and you raise the um, the Israeli-Palestinian issue, where they both have powerful foundation stories related to the same land, mm -hmm. and similarly with the Greeks and Macedonians mm -hmm. as well, both having powerful foundation stories and trying to to look back to classical times. And uh, wrap themselves in in uh, foundation stories that go back to classical Greece or, or ancient Macedonia, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. order to invest themselves with um, with superior claims to that territory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the and the more ancient the claim, uh, generally speaking, the more convincing it it is thought to be. Then I guess that's the simple logic. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I mean, if you can look back and and say, well, you know. We've been here for 5,000 years or 50,000 years or, you know, in the case of uh, Australian Aborigines, of course, they will look back and say, well, you know, we've been here for at least 60,000 and perhaps, you know, 100,000 years. Uh -huh. yeah. Um, yeah. So even though you, know, you are overwhelming in terms of your numbers, our foundation story is, is much more powerful than yours. And, and you know, non-Aboriginal Australians acknowledge that. Yeah, and try and embrace that foundation story within their own. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, though, many times, I mean, one of the things that I found a little bit, as I told you in the pre-interview, almost sad about the book is that so many times um, these foundation stories seem to have power exactly because the truth of the matter is just too awful to face, that we just can't tell ourselves that we are here somehow illegitimately at the expense of people that we either pushed off the land or exterminated. This is just not something that we can tell ourselves and go about our business. Yes. Um, in some cases, you know, people weren't so reluctant to do it. Of course, Hitler was quite open yeah, no, about it yeah, no, and true. said, you know, when we sweep into Eastern Europe, we're doing it because we're bigger and better and, and stronger yeah. and we do it by right of conquest. But even he said, but even if I could just interrupt for a second, but even he said, um, 
again, it's, it's you, you, I don't want to be in the position of defending Hitler. That's not really uh, a tenable position. But he, even he said what he was trying to do was uh, improve the human race by Germanizing it. That is that people in the future would be happier because they were Germans and they were not Poles or Russians or Jews. And so it was a better world that he thought he was making. And again, I, I, I think he believed that to be true, however misguided it was, and it was misguided. But, you know, the logic seems very similar. We, can, we need to take Poland and southern Russia because the Polish people and the Russians are not developing it appropriately, and they are racially inferior to us. Therefore, we have the right to go there and do this. And these, these arguments were made by Americans. These arguments were made by Andrew Jackson when he was yeah. you know, sweeping you know, the Seminoles or trying to sweep the Seminoles out of Florida, that they weren't developing yeah. the land, that they were somehow racially inferior. Yes, indeed. And, I mean, it's been made in recent times even by Australian politicians saying that, um, you know, we, we are right to be here, you know, just in the last few years, that we were right to be here. The, the Australian Aborigines hadn't even um, used the wheel in Australia. Yeah. And so we were right to come and, and take over. They were, um, you know, a Stone Age people, and we were bringing progress mm. and enlightenment. Yeah. You know, the British in, in, uh, in Ireland talking in the 19th century. Absolutely. The, the yeah. Irish being white monkeys. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, it's funny the because... The standard of agriculture yeah. was so primitive. No, I, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but it, you, you, there, was been a, there was a recent kerfluffle here in the um, press about uh, Rush Limbaugh or somebody. He's a kind of radio talk show host, and he's you know reasonably right-wing. And, uh, you know, he will say by way of excuse for... Uh, the American, I don't know exactly how to put it, the, the, the Anglo genocide of um, Native Americans, that today there are more Native Americans and they're more prosperous than ever before. That somehow yeah. this excuses what was done earlier on. And I just find that fascinating that that logic could be compelling. And, and you hear it quite a bit, actually. Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, one of the things, I guess one of the, the core arguments of the book is is um, this idea of a genocidal imperative mm -hmm. uh, that seems to be a common feature of supplanting societies. Mm -hmm. And what I was, you know, this the whole idea of genocide is a very troubling one for people, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a very troubling issue in in the context of Australian history. Mm -hmm. And there's there's an incredible reluctance by. Australian historians to embrace the word at all, to, mm -hmm. or to use the word of genocide, and, and in fact there's, there's usually a denial that, that anything approaching genocide happened in Australia. Mm -hmm. But what I wanted to, to recapture really was the original meaning of the word genocide mm -hmm. uh, by you know, Raphael Lemkin when he originally coined the term back in the Second World War in reference to the Nazis. Mm -hmm. But also casting back you know, to the Turkish treatment of the Armenians mm -hmm. um, and, and other such cases. And what he wanted to, to try and say when coining the term genocide was, of course, not, it was not simply the mass extermination of people, but it was all about the removal of people, you know, the, um, I guess, the, the dis disattachment of people, as mm -hmm. it were, from, from territory. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, all, it was not just about 
killing people, but it was a whole raft of of acts and laws that are, that are uh, brought into play as invading people try and take over from pre-existing people, mm-hmm. and uh, so it includes such apparently benign things as as assimilation, mm-hmm. um, so that instead of having Indians, you try and in the North American context instead of having so-called Indians, you you make them into Americans. Exactly. And, yeah. and similarly in the, in yeah. Australia, and this 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 idea of assimilation is, as it happens, you know, a very live one at the moment. There's an idea you know, because Aboriginal Australians are still still make up a large part of of northern and and central Australia, large part of the population. Uh-huh. And there's a big push at the moment to try and define them as being. Um, living in in unviable communities and to try and absorb them into to nearby white populated towns uh-huh. and uh, with the idea that they will over time see themselves more as Australians rather than Aboriginals. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a whole a whole uh, raft of ways in which um, this genocidal imperative is played out through assimilation, through expulsion of people, as happened in in uh, the formation of the state of Israel when Palestinians were expelled. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is so something you know that about the you know just while well, you mentioned that that's a very hot button issue, obviously in the United States, and, <laughs> and that, that that's just something that I mean, if you want to start a fight. <laughs> in intellectual circles in the United States, you just say that sentence you just said, and um, people will go crazy, you know, uh, actually arguing about that, that just that very point. I mean, even though it's been very amply historically documented what happened. I mean, it, it's it's just it's 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 somehow not possible to go about our business and admit that's what happened. And uh, I, I I just find that particularly fascinating that. Yeah. The, the Israelis. I mean, it, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, the Israelis will admit it. Yeah, no, Israel, yeah, yeah, they will. <laughs> it's it's usually you know, supporters of Israel from outside of the place, and and similarly with you know the Greek Macedonian uh, dispute as well. The passions are much more intense outside of Greece yeah. than today. No, I think that's and, right. Yeah, we've had huge demonstrations and burnings of churches in Melbourne. Uh, by Greeks and Macedonians. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I notice what you mean. I, I just find it very, very interesting that that people, you know, that that there's that, that they like these kind of comforting stories and that they stick to them so so fastly that they just don't seem to be able to give them up in any way. It's a, it's it's just something that you know, as historians, I think we should probably be disturbed by. Yeah, well, I mean, they're called foundation stories for a reason. Yeah. Uh, and once you knock out the foundations of a place, it falls down. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian thing is, is a particularly vexed issue because they both have such strong stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and neither people are going to go away. No. Yeah. And, you know, I try and argue in the book that the only way that the, the issue... Uh, will be resolved eventually is by them, by both sides finally agreeing to live together, well, uh, not side by side, because that won't solve the issue. Yeah. Uh, 
but but together in the same state, as in fact you know they're doing within Israel anyway, where there's 22 yeah. percent or so of Palestinians. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, I mean, I, I you know again to to kind of challenge you a little bit on that point. I think that historically speaking, though, that's often not the way that it's turned out. I mean, in some cases, one side simply overwhelms the other. I'm not saying that will happen in the Palestinian-Israeli case, but uh, there are many cases. I mean, the world is full of them in which one side has simply overwhelmed the other, and there has been this kind of genocidal imperative, as you well put it, brought uh, to fruition, unfortunately, you know. You know, I, I, I don't... I mean, that's, that's certainly true. I think in the Israeli-Palestinian case, though, the, it's a position of such stalemate between the two that they yeah. are both no, really think... powerful players that um, neither one can really overwhelm the other. And eventually they will see the sense, I think. You know, it'll probably be 100 years down the track or maybe 50 yeah. years down the track. Yeah. They will see the sense, I think. And, and the great benefit, the great benefit that will come when they eventually stop warring with each other yeah. and actually start living together with each other as they have done, mm-hmm. you know, as they did used to do. Yeah, um, well, God grant. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me um, ask you again a, a little bit about this notion of genocidal imperative, because you know one of the issues that historians talk about, especially modern historians, is, is a, the attempt to historicize the Holocaust, which has become kind of a synonym for gen- genocides everywhere, I, I think kind of unfortunately. But uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the way in which the Holocaust um, can be historicized using that concept, or cannot be historicized using that concept. Well, I mean, you know, there's a big debate going on, as you know, as to whether the Holocaust is, is unique, you know, whether there's anything unique about the Holocaust, and um, you know, the, the size of it. I guess almost the industrial nature of it mm-hmm. certainly gave it unique features. Um, but what I wanted to try and show was that it can also be understood in the terms of um, of a supplanting society. And I was I always get disturbed when when something is said, you know, it's just too terrible. We can never understand it. Yeah, no. I, uh, I, the, the Germans were so awful that um, you know they were simply evil. They were beyond our understanding uh-huh. and I don't think that's true I mean I think we can understand it you know they are human beings yeah. they were following you know, human impulses in, mm-hmm. in what they were doing mm-hmm. um, they were right out there as it were yeah. <laughs> on the edge of our understanding yeah. but I think in terms of, of, of the ideas that I put forward in this book I think it does start to make sense of what um, of what the Germans were trying to do, and I think partly it's understood, you know, in the sort of predicament that they had, living in the centre of Europe, as mm-hmm. it were, with two strong nations on either side, or mm-hmm. two strong peoples on either side, the French mm-hmm. and, and and the Russians, and living in a place also where there weren't those clear territorial definitions. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there wasn't a big mountain range dividing mm-hmm. Germany off from the east. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'd been historically this movement across those central plains mm-hmm. you know, between the Poles and, yeah. and, and the Russians and and, uh, and the Germans as they they vied for control of those places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a sense in which the Germans could say that well we, you know we have this historical association we are superior in terms of our culture and our agriculture and our industry. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know, we want to go back and, and yeah. take over these places in which we've had this historical association. Yeah, no, I see just what you mean. I, I, th- I think that, you know, w- one thought that comes to mind about this is that um, we we don't tend to think of the policies of the Nazis in their own time. And what I mean by that is, you know, one example that many people might know is that eugenics, for example, uh, was a kind of going concern in the early 20th century. Lots mm. of right-thinking people thought eugenics was a totally good idea. Um, similarly, I mean, you know this is an Australian, uh, the notion of pronatalism, that you really need to build your nation up, that you need more of whatever you are, was um, uh, through much of American history, and I, I suspect the same is true of Australian history, really something that every right-thinking person believed, that, that you needed more of you, whoever you were. And I think the Germans said, you know, well, there are a lot of us, and um, we want more of us, because every nation wants more of them. That's what nations are. And, uh, you know, in that sense, it, it wasn't a terribly unusual idea. I think that we put it into a category now that makes it seem extraordinarily strange. But, you know, again, some of the most enlightening parts of your book to me were these these sort of pro-natalist policies in precisely in in Australia, which, you know, are kind of foreign to the American mentality. Yes, I mean... Yeah, this is part of peopling the continent. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Australia yeah. is a huge place. Yes, it North is. America is a huge place, and you know it's, it's very easy to have an ambition, as Jefferson did, to control the whole continent. But to actually people it is a huge task. Yeah. And um, you know he hoped that you would be able to do it uh, simply through through the birth rate, uh-huh. through um, you know people um, natural increase, lots of yeah. children mm-hmm. and and spreading across the continent. But, of course, that was not possible. It was mm-hmm. not possible in Australia either. As people became wealthier, they had less children. Mm-hmm. So then you had to turn to other people to try and come in and help buttress the, the population. Mm-hmm. But turning back to the Nazis as well, I mean, there was a feeling, you know, we see them as extraordinary and, and, uh, and as somewhere, you know, as outside, really, of of uh, historical development is rather than part of the natural flow of things. The Nazis themselves looked to the British Empire, really, for their justification Uh and for their racial policies looked to Australia of all places. Is that right? Could you talk a little Um, bit about that? I don't know. Well, there was a quote at one stage by Hitler when he talked approvingly of white Australia and its racial policies. Uh Um... Uh, this idea that, uh, that the territory should be populated simply by the one race and that you should exclude all others and get rid of any of of uh, you know, any non-whites who are already there, that uh-huh. you should be able to to expel them yeah. uh, or otherwise absorb them. Um, and uh, so he saw Australia as as the sort of ideal, really. <laughs> To some extent, and and also you know, look to to the expansion of Britain and and the British Empire as justification for his own expansion mm-hmm. or for his own ideas about expansion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems to me though there's been some sort of shift in the mid 20th century toward a policy of assimilation of some sort, and by assimilation I mean even biological assimilation. That would 
be, you know, that in fact the races should co-mingle. I mean, I think in the mid-20th century, before the mid-20th century, I should say, this was a, thought to be a very strange idea. I mean, I, I know that even in the case of, uh, you know, Lincoln, for example, in the United States, he had grave doubts as to whether the black populations could ever be assimilated to white America. Um, and certainly someone like Woodrow Wilson, even in the, you know, sort of in the 1920s, felt that basically black should be segregated. So th these were not unusual ideas in any way. I think the unusual thing is what we think now, and that is that there should be this kind of commingling. And I, and I don't, I wouldn't, I, I don't have a lot of confidence when I say we, uh, that we are a majority in the world today. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I, I know that, um, and I, I mean, I know it's the case that, you know, the, the Japanese people I know, <laughs> it reminds me of an anecdote. I don't know if it's true, but, you know, the, the, the Japanese newspaper asked uh, Japanese citizens what they thought was wrong with the United States, and, and their answer was black people. <laughs> I mean, that was, it well, was obvious to them, you know, that it was like, well, they have black people there. I mean, and, you know, they have this big minority, and obviously that's a problem. Yes. Well, the Japanese prime minister famously made that sort of remark as well. Um, and there's a great you know, sense of denial in Japan about the fact that they are, in fact, you know, a mixed race. Yeah, no. People and of the, mixed race yeah, as well. Yeah, this is, the, this is truly astounding, and you do an excellent job of pointing that out. Yeah. I mean, I know a little bit about the Koreans in Japan who, uh, you know, most Japanese people, I mean, now it's a little bit different, but for decades it just wasn't acknowledged that there were any Koreans in Japan. They, they were, yeah, they weren't yeah. Given and similarly with the Aino as well. Yeah, exactly, um, yeah. It's only recently now, as the Aino are starting to reassert themselves, that there is any recognition that there were a pre-existing people mm -hmm. um, in Japan itself, you know, in the in the main island of Honshu, but also, of course, in Hokkaido. Um, but that idea of, of commingling as well, uh, I mean, in Australia, you know, they were so definite in the 20s and 30s that you know, it had to be absolutely white and you know, they were restricting as the United States was mm -hmm. the entry of southern Europeans quite mm -hmm. strictly yeah. um, uh, and trying to limit them just to a few thousand a year mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time they were facing the problem of, of Aboriginal people what to do about the continuing ex existence of Aboriginal people and particularly when they discovered that the numbers were increasing Mm -hmm. uh, Australians had been um, relaxed about the idea of, of uh, Aboriginal people uh, still being in large numbers across northern Australia because they felt that they were dying out, that they were a dying race mm -hmm. and that within 50 or 100 years they would no longer yeah. exist. But uh -huh. suddenly they discovered in the 20s and 30s that in fact their numbers were increasing. Uh -huh. And so then there was a, a government program to try and absorb Aboriginal people, certainly Aboriginal people of mixed race, into the uh, white Australian population. Uh -huh. So there was yeah. a, a, an ongoing policy that went on until the 1970s to take Aboriginal children of mixed race uh -huh. away from their parents uh, uh -huh. and put them with white Australians huh. with the idea that they would serve in uh, you know, menial positions as servants, uh -huh. house servants, or, yeah. or work on farms and then gradually over time be absorbed uh, racially so that they would disappear. 
uh-huh. where the the people of um, you know, not of mixed race Aborigines uh, not of mixed race would then go on and uh, and gradually die out, while uh-huh. these ones of mixed race uh, would be absorbed, so that you know, the the original aim of of causing the Aboriginal people to disappear mm-hmm. uh, be achieved. Yeah, no, it's funny because you bring to mind uh, a moment in 19th century European intellectual history, and I suspect political history as well, where that is a concept. You can actually read it in Marx, I remember, and that is the distinction between historical and unhistorical people. Um, and it was simply assumed that there were, you know, for example, the Poles were not thought to be a historical people. They had no state of their own in the 19th century, therefore they were going to somehow disappear. Um, it wasn't clear exactly why. The Irish, they were going to disappear. Similarly with the Basques, you know, similarly with the Slovaks, similarly with the Cossacks and the, the uh, Ukrainians, the Belarusians. All these peoples were going to disappear because they were somehow, and they were definitely put into this category almost unconsciously, they were unhistorical. They didn't have a state. And if you didn't have a state, well, then you couldn't be historical and you were going to disappear. And this was thought to happen in the normal course of affairs, you know, that it was, these peoples were just going to disappear. Yeah. Well, you know, those those ideas, of course, were were common across the centuries, and uh, you know they helped to to justify the incoming society as yeah. well. No, I think that's um, right. I think that's absolutely you know, right. They are the vanguard of progress, and these other people are, are somehow you know, either primitive or, or in fact subhuman and and akin to beasts. Yeah, yeah. Into you know, yeah. the animals of the forest. Right. One one of the things you point out that I found uh, I noticed this a long time ago, actually. Um, in, in in sort of my studies of, of European and world history, and that is that uh, in in modern times, and, and by modern times I mean in the past, let, let's say, uh, 500 years, uh, it's only been extraordinarily rarely that any one people has actually supplanted, completely supplanted another. Why do you think that is? Well, it's just so difficult. <laughs> it really is difficult to... Um to supplant a pre-existing people who you know, have strong foundation stories. Uh, it's really difficult to get people you know, in the Australian context when the, the British took over Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really difficult to get sufficient number of British people to come out to Australia mm-hmm. uh, and make that place their own, mm-hmm. to forsake their, their homeland and, and to come to a new home. Mm-hmm. Um, so Australians now... You know, up until the, the 1930s, saw themselves very much as British and wanted to stay as British. But the war, the Second World War, really revealed quite starkly that uh, they could, they had no hope of, of controlling the continent mm-hmm. uh, if they stuck to that course. Right. Uh, that they simply couldn't get sufficient numbers of British people out right. of Australia yeah. to control the whole continent. Uh, so then had then had to turn to uh, the southern Europeans and and other peoples to try and boost the population. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it, it has been quite rare. I mean, I was thinking about it, uh, you know, in the context of of Russian history, the the last success, as far as I can tell, the last successful, you know, sort of clearing of a people from the land occurred in the Soviet Union or actually in Russia. So, you know, beginning in the 17th century and then ending in Soviet times, and that was the clearing of the Cossack peoples, the Tatars, from the steppe. And they are now mm-hmm. gone. And, and uh, those areas are, 
are popular. You know, that, those areas are, are ethnically Russian now. Um, but that was the last time it really occurred. There's not been any successful effort at it since. I mean, there have been some major, uh, ex pop, I guess what you'd call population exchanges. Not to put, you know, not to put it in, you know, that's a little bit too neutral, I suppose. But you know, the Germans after World War II, and then um, the. Uh, the Kosovars were moved. But, yeah, I mean, it is extraordinarily difficult to do, but it doesn't stop people from trying to do it. And uh, they, they, you know, I, I, do, you, do you ever see a moment in which it will cease, this process of supplantation? Um, probably not. I mean, it's becoming more complex now, I think, um, because there's this international recognition of, of indigenous people uh -huh. uh, and and recognition of of historical rights to territory, mm -hmm. um, so it's becoming much more difficult to achieve. I yeah. think. Um, so, you know, it's very hard to to cast forward. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And uh, suggest what the future will hold. Yeah. But, uh, no, I, I don't have any real confidence myself that it will actually uh, ever cease. I think that we are kind of in a momentary lull of it right now. Um, well, I mean, you're looking at different parts of the world. You can see the story ongoing. Yeah. Um, you know, even in such supposedly settled places uh, as Britain and uh, as we were talking about before in the United States. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, not to mention, you know, in various parts of Europe as well. Yeah, well, I, you know, I do, not to frighten our Canadian uh, listeners, but uh, <laughs> we're probably coming. I don't know when, but we're probably coming. Um, yeah, anyway, well, they know, they yeah, know that, actually. They do. Yeah, I think they do. Yeah, I hope it isn't in my lifetime. I like Canadians. They're very nice people. Um, anyway, David Day, thank you. Thank you uh, very much for being with us today on the show. We really, really appreciate it. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, let me ask you our traditional final question, and that is, this. Uh, what are you working on now? Well, now I'm actually working on um, a history of Antarctica, really? Antarctica. Uh -huh. So looking at the displacement of the penguins, <laughs> <laughs> but looking, you know, very broadly at uh, how Antarctica has been imagined and, and claimed by different societies since uh -huh. you know, the 1820s. Uh -huh. That's really interesting. That's good. Well, I hope that when you're done with the book that you'll agree to come on the show again because it's been really interesting talking to you, and we've really appreciated it. Thank you, Marshall. Well, David, thanks for being on the show. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with David Day, the author of Conquest, How Societies Overwhelm Others, which has recently appeared from Oxford University Press. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.